Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host and the editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books, Tom Lutz. How are you, Tom? Very good. Glad to be back for part two of our San Francisco show. What is that show? That show is an event we held at the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco with authors Jade Chang and Rabbi Al-Madin, who we excerpted from last week. And now, this time, we're going to be talking with author, famous, fantastic author, Ha Jin, and my old friend, Jose Cuellar, a.k.a. Dr. Loco. This event took place in November. We'll start with Tom's introduction to author Ha Jin. Our next author is Ha Jin, who you all already know. <laughs> Welcome, Ha Jin, author of 20 books, including, of course, the National Book Award winning Waiting and the Penn Faulkner Award winning War Trash. And now, The Boat Rocker. <laughs> We're so pleased to have you with us. I have to start with this question, even though I'm sure you've been asked it before, and also because it's not really related to your novel, but it's just such a compelling question for me. You're 13 years old when you first go into the Army. You experience the Cultural Revolution, colleges closing, book burning. How did a 13-year-old ripped from your life? I know you've written about it, but I just wondered if you could just talk about how a 13-year-old understands that when it happens. My father was an officer, so at the time all the schools were closed. To go to the army was a better choice over going to the countryside Mm -hmm. because in the army at least the food was better. Uh, And in the countryside, a lot of young people, they had to work in, in the fields. That was harder. So... I think 16 kids from my father's unit, basically from my school, were going to the army. So I was the youngest. I lied about my age. But at the time, it was a better choice, in theory. But we didn't know that we would go to the front, very front, on the border between China and the former Soviet Union. So that was a surprise. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, I guess, was it terrifying? Um, no. I was too young to feel that way because in the army, everything was clear. We knew we were to be sacrificed because our regiment, like 1,500 soldiers who guarded more than 200 miles borderline. Mm. So we were at the front. We were supposed to be just (laughs) to be sacrificed if anything happened, the Russians crossed the border. And then so that it, was clear, very clear. Yes. And then it isn't too much later that you are in the U.S. and Tiananmen Square is happening. Yes, that was, you know, many years later. I went to college in China, and then during my graduate years, I began to uh, work with American professors. Mm-hmm. So I specialize in American literature. So to come to the States was like a continued education. So it was almost a natural step. 
So that's why I got a scholarship from Brandeis. I went to Brandeis and, and uh, planned to finish everything in four years. At the time, there was a big deal if you have a PhD in American literature. It was very, very big deal at the time because it was a new field and China had been closed for so many years. So I had a good job waiting for me in China. But then the Tiananmen massacre happened. I just couldn't go back. Mm-hmm. In your new book, your protagonist, Dan Lin, is a journalist. Yes. And <laughs> it's very interesting character, and he does a lot of thinking about what is country, what is patriotism, what is one's responsibility to country. It's very, very interesting and deep. And I had this romantic idea that for you, I'm just making this up, that what you found in my romantic ideal is that your country was the kind of international and timeless community of writers. That was your, your people. In a way, that's true, because I think, in a way, national borderline for me really doesn't mean much. I think language is really the most important thing for a writer, because there is a difference between one's native language and the first language. A lot of people, during their migration, the native language would become the second language, even the third language. So for me, to be a writer, basically, is to find your role in your first language, even to create your first language. So that was a big struggle for me. That is much more meaningful than a country. It's the same if you are Buddhist, your temple is more important, right? And so there are different value systems. That's why this protagonist, that he has different thoughts. He's younger, much younger than me, the younger generation. So he speaks differently from me. I wouldn't talk like him mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he's writing for an international audience, mm-hmm. right? He's writing for an audience both in the U.S. and in China. Yes. Right? He's writing in Chinese. And the boat rocking that he does has to do in part with the world of publishing. Yes. And in fact, there have been kind of news agencies outside China. But... A decade ago, they were very independent, but now somehow they were some more or less controlled by the power that be. China, even I think started a decade ago, began to acquire media facilities. So mm-hmm. this happened a long time ago. It's the first time I've seen publishers that are basically gangsters, right? The guys that come over from China. Except for Rupert Murdoch. Like <laughs> relatives. They're a little gangsterish. You know, because a lot of people, especially these are new arrivals, immigrants, but they arrived in the States when they were already adults. So they have their sensibility, mentality shaped already back in China. So that's why they behave somehow irrationally or in their own way. It's very different from the world we expect them. Mm-hmm. One of the things I like about Dan Lin, he's a little naive. He's younger than you are, as you say. Yes. But... He believes that journalists are truth-tellers. Yes. I like that about him. I became a journalist because I believed that yes. journalists yes. were truth-tellers. And then you become one and you realize yes. that you're compromised in all kinds of sure. ways. And, yeah. But compared to journalists in China, for instance, there, yes. there is a large difference. Or journalists course, on Fox yes. News. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Of course, yes, freedom, freedom of speech and expression. A lot of ideas are essential. I do feel I like him for that because... He even he said that Americans don't you know, just uh, compromise. I think that's a good quality. 
Mm -hmm. And without ideas, how can we improve ourselves? Mm -hmm. Ideas are usually are there to become kind of vision so that we have a measurement. But again, in literature, this is very often viewed as an American flaw. For instance, the quite American, right? The protagonist basically was obsessed with an idea, a ridiculous idea, and then he tried to shape the world. According to the idea, that caused a lot of destructions. On the other hand, I do feel that I think it's the same as Dan Lin, and ideas are essential. Think about it, some ideas that appear in the Declaration of Independence, and all men are created equal. For many people outside the United States, that was like, a, like a lightning. <laughs> it really is mind-opening and really create a kind of different vision. Without that, it's very hard to improve humanity. So ideas are essential. I do feel that way. Mm. And yet, at the same time, Denlin is, I think Laurie said, a little naive. He's a little Candide-like, right? He's, uh, yes. The relation of his own ideas to his own life, to his own desires, to his own frustrations is complicated, but not in ways that he's entirely aware of. I think he was somehow traumatized. Really, he was troubled and because his wife betrayed him, and also he felt he was betrayed by his country. But on that hand, all these are very serious, but the book, I wanted to give the book a comic service. Yeah. The guy, yeah. he's so outspoken, so outrageous, <laughs> he never minces his words. He is a I would say very few, very few Chinese would talk like that. Mm. So in that sense, I think he's quite original. He is that he's kind of caught between two cultures. It's really quite a wonderful character, but he says that in China, everything is political. Yes. And you have no choice but to be caught up mm -hmm. in politics. And, and I think you know when you become a journalist, you're automatically caught up in First Amendment issues. But I also thought, you know, in America, maybe we have more freedom to not be political or think that we're not political, that that's both a luxury and a curse. It can make us very shallow and not understanding the world around us as we should because we feel like we're not in danger and we don't need to. I think that's an ideal kind of a situation, but very often in the real world, sooner or later you have to take sides. I think I'm quoting a character from Graham Greene's great novel, mm -hmm. The Quiet American. Right. Sooner or later, you have to take sides mm -hmm. if you want to remain human. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great sentence. No matter what, one way or another, you will be caught up in it. Mm -hmm. I think that is the human condition. Uh, even if we can be protected from politics, but you can't avoid, you know, those forces are much bigger than our individuals, and, and they will overtake us easily. We talked with Rabi about poetry, and in the green room before we came yes. out, we were talking about poetry quite a bit. And you are now, among the projects that you're engaged in, is a translation project. I've been doing several things. Because my wife has been very sick, very ill in recent years, so it was hard for me to start a novel project. So I began to write poetry a lot in Chinese. And then I began to publish a lot of poems in Chinese. In fact, two books of poems in Chinese. And then I, I've been rewriting some of the poems. So that is kind of translation, but it's not exactly translation because a lot of poems have to be revisioned, re mm -hmm. rewritten in order to make sense <laughs> yeah. in English. Also, I've been working on a biography of the Asian Chinese poet Li Bo because I discovered uh, there was no biography of this great poet in English. 
Oh, no kidding. So that's why I thought that, in fact, I was asked to write a long biographical essay on him. Then I began to research. I couldn't find any much information written in English. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's why I thought instead of to write a mini biography, why uh, shouldn't I write a whole, a complete biography? But I learned a lot. I learned a lot in the process, I think. A lot about poetry. Not only about poetry, but see how he struggled and how the culture. So basically, it's not a biography of a person. It's about the culture, the poetry culture, mm-hmm. and what is behind this. That really touched me deeply. I have to seize the moment because it's such an unusual moment and you talk about, you're writing about China as a true police state. I want to know what you make of our election right now. Uh, (laughs) So that's why, in fact, I I was about to mention that. For instance, you can't see because the politics, in fact, the results of the election will affect everybody deeply. And that there is a possibility that if we don't protect democracy, dictatorship might be viewed as a normal kind of governance. And so I think that's very important. I'm frightened by Donald Trump. I really am very, very scared by that. And so that's my thought about this. In fact, my son, he was doing graduate work in American history, so we talk a lot about this. And so if we really we don't try to protect, don't get involved and protect our social justice and the freedom and the basic values, then the kind of so-called different kind of model, the alternative might overtake us. I think that is a very terrible thing. And that's why I thought you know, ideas, ideals, these are important that make us different from animals. Otherwise, we'll be trapped in this quagmire for particulars. I do feel that universals are essential. When we talk about literature, universality, universals are kind of kernel essential values. (laughs) Thank you. So if Donald Trump is elected, you will be a boat rocker? I think there might be not many boat rocking Mm. anymore. Because, as I said just now, dictatorship can be regarded as a kind of normal mode of governance. And that happened in many countries. So in that sense, I do feel the the United States as the citadel of democracy. Really, we have to work very hard and struggle to preserve this. Have you been shocked to see this personality rise the way he did in this country? Uh, sure, I was surprised. In the beginning, nobody would take him seriously at all. But now he really became insane. For instance, he would say, I would contest the result of the election. Anybody who wants to serve a country, to be a head of country, that was a really a crazy statement. Yeah. And that means what happened if he loses the election? His supporters are going to go violent. There's a possibility. Yes. That is very scary. Yes. So that might set up a precedent. So basically that will be a huge blow to the democracy. Do you think it's because we've been running so many stories about this election in the Los Angeles Review of Books that that's what makes it? <laughs> and also, what's your favorite musical? <laughs> uh, Hajin, it's been such an honor to talk to you. We're so thankful that you came and talked to, talk thank to us. You. Thank, thank you so much. You. Thank you. You 
are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now it's time for this week's book recommendation. I just, for various reasons, read Lena Dunham's memoir. Yeah, I read it too. Not That Kind of Girl, delightful book. And I was quite happy with what I realized was a very sophisticated literary intelligence at work. Absolutely. People have kind of jumped on this or that part of the book. There's all sorts of criticisms of it, but it has to do with the content. And I was quite amazed at the sophisticated form of it. It's not chronological, it's thematic, and it retells a series of stories. It's very involved in thinking through the kind of truthiness questions that have plagued nonfiction writing over the last decade. And, of course, she has great comic timing. Superb comic timing. And, obviously, there are people who don't love Lena Dunham's work. This, by the way, shows her in a completely different light than her TV show on HBO, Girls, shows her. She is a much deeper and more serious person than the character that she plays on Girls. And although there may be legitimate criticisms of her out there, I do feel that a lot of the criticism out there simply, it's a very age-old and misogynistic line of thinking, which is, how dare she? Yeah, I interviewed her recently, and among the things we talked about was the difference between this persona that she's created for herself and the person who she is. That is, there's the implied author of this text, who is a very, very intelligent, very, very kind of broad-thinking And there's a large difference between the persona that she's created, which is a kind of oblivious person who Mm. crashes through life and crashes through relationships. On the TV show. On the TV show. And to a certain extent, in the book, she does the same thing. Also, in her ad for Hillary Clinton, for instance, Mm -hmm. it opens with this kind of massive big star obliviousness on her part. It is a hilarious scene. She loves to play that person that doesn't understand how obnoxious she is, how obnoxious this character that she's created is. Which is a form of self-deprecation. Right. Yes, it is. And it's also a kind of form of literary masquerade, which has been a central part of American literature for since Melville. Yes, and for women since Anita Luce. Yeah, fantastic example. Yeah, she's very Lucian. Mm -hmm. The book is Not That Kind of Girl. The author's Lena Dunham. Came out in 2014. But I just read it, so it's new to me. And now to our interview with the inimitable Dr. Loco. Now, Jose Cuellar is going to come and talk to us about his flutes and other things. Okay, so what is that thing that you're playing? This is often called an ocarina. It's a little uh, ceramic flute, goblin flute. And it was named the ocarina by uh, an Italian baker named Giuseppe Donati, who in the 1700s uh, went to Spain and saw an exhibit of the Mexican ocarinas that had been taken to Spain by the conquistadores. And he decided to try to see if he could make one. And so he made the European version that 
the Zelda Ocarina, uh -huh. the sweet potato. And it uh, comes from this and uh, this little simple ocarina. I uh, credit for being the reason Harvard Peabody Museum awarded me the uh, Herdy Curatorial Fellowship in 2013 to... Uh, record and research almost 200 of these that they have at the Peabody Museum, and it's a permanent exhibit now at the museum, so you're all invited to go check out my work there. Mm. <laughs> and the other flutes that you were playing earlier? The others are northern. This is Mesoamerican, so from Jalisco, Guadalajara, to all the way to the Andes. These are the North American flutes. And initially, this was, I was given the fellowship to study North American flutes, but uh, the flutes that the museum held uh, had been contaminated with pesticides, including arsenic, because in the 1800s, they thought they would serve as preservatives. Uh. And so they treated them, and then when I went to do the research, they said, well, the bad news is that you can't play the ones that we have here because... They've been treated with arsenic, but the good news is we have all of these ceramic ones from Mesoamerica <laughs> that you can research, and so uh, that's what I did. So this one was made for me by Nash Tiwa from Oaxaca. This one by Marlon Magdalena from the Jemez Pueblo in New Mexico. And this one by William Gutierrez, Southern Ute, who is a traveler and sells all across the powwows. So you and Tom used to play music together, correct? Was yes. he fun to play with? He was great. Absolutely. He had great personality, great <laughs> stage presence, and would listen really well. <laughs> and contributed significantly to the music, yes. It was great. It was terrific. When we met, Jose was at the Stanford Chicano Research Center uh, on leave from San Diego State University. And he was doing this really interesting project about the border, which in a sense you're still doing, and how everything that goes back and forth across the border changes. And one of my favorites, of course, was the cowboy hat, for instance. The way it, it, like, it got bigger, smaller as it went back and forth across the border and became some Tortillas. Change. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and low rider culture as it kind of moved from Los Angeles into Mexico and back across the border into Texas and back across the border into Mexico and back across and kept changing. Jose was so important to my life as a scholar and as a writer and as a, as a thinker in part because at one point during this term at the, at the Stanford uh, Research Center, you decided you were gonna start a band. And the band was a research project, it was an activist project, it was a, it was a complicated project, and the idea was, um, as you explained it to me, <laughs> was that uh, all of the bands, uh, all of the Chicano bands, were either, they either played cumbias, or they played rancheras, or they played um, salsa, or they played um, you know, old, oldies, or they played, right? Mm -hmm. So, and that you wanted to build a band that would be a kind of community building, have a community building effect by bringing all of these musics together. Yes, and to some extent also it reflects the Southwest, again, the borderlands, where all these different genres come and they mix and they blend and they transculturate. So you have all these changes that occur in influencing one another that occurs along the border, and that was part of my interest. Uh, as Tom mentioned, what happened when I was at Stanford, I'd been invited to be visiting scholar in Chicano studies and, and uh, with a, a Chicano fellows program, 
And I thought it was great. I was going to take a year off from San Diego State and hang out at Stanford. And so when I went there, I began to engage in the community. And one of the artists in the community there was uh, Jose Antonio Burciaga, who passed away. Uh, and Jose Antonio was resident scholar and artist at Casa Zapata Stern Hall, one of the Chicano residents. And he had doing murals and teaching students all kinds of artistic activities, and he had had this mural that he had created on the wall of the dining hall, and he wanted to dedicate that mural, and he wanted to have a party to dedicate the mural, and so he asked me, he said, you used to be a musician, uh, could you put together a band to celebrate this party? And so I said, I had seen a lot of talent around Stanford, so I knew there were people who could play, and so I decided, sure, I'll put up a flyer, musicians, we're going to have a party, and different folks begin to come. And it was, I think, finally, we had about 12 musicians on yeah, stage. It was big. And we were <laughs> <laughs> safety in numbers. So we practiced and we played for this performance. And mm -hmm. we did this, and it was going to be a one-night one thing. I mean, we really hadn't thought about it other than that. So we prepared a program for that night. We have the event, and as luck would have it, it was a slow news night. Remember, I don't even remember that. It's a slow news night, and the Chronicle sent a reporter and a photographer. And so he sent a photographer. And so then on Sunday, this was, I think, Friday, on Sunday, mm -hmm. in the Chronicle, there's this photo in the, new, in the lifestyle section of our band and the band playing at this dedication. After that photo comes out, then I get a call from the San Jose Mercury News saying, are you the... The, the professor that also has a rock and roll band <laughs> said, we'd like to do an article on you. Okay, so we did an article. And then you, know, you may remember, those of you that have been around San Francisco a while, there was a program called People Are Talking. And they were going to do a show on professionals who moonlight. And then they called me and said, look, we have a surgeon who's a race car driver, and you're a Stanford professor who has a band, and we'd like to have you be on the show. <laughs> so within a month... I'm, this, I'm now this personality. And this band, we had been thinking about, I wanted to give it a name that night for the, for the event. And so, you know, thinking I like Dr. Uh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band, and I have been influenced by New Orleans, so Dr. John, Professor Longhair. So along those lines, I thought, oh, Dr. Loco. <laughs> and what had happened is in Tijuana, when I was doing this research, this kid came up to me. I was doing research on, on kids in the barrio, and this kid comes up to me in Spanish, and he says, Oye, ¿es verdad que tú eres un doctor? Is it true that you're a doctor? Mm -hmm. And so I did, Simone say, antropólogo. <laughs> and so he laughs. He goes, a poco, doctor loco, like that. <laughs> and so everybody laughs. Yeah. And in Tijuana... I then get to get, my nickname is Dr. Loco. And so when I'm thinking of this band, I thought, oh, Dr. Loco. And then I said, Corrido Boogie, the genre that we play, so I'm going to call it Dr. Loco's Corrido Boogie Band. And that's what we formed. Yeah. And then after that came out, then I said, well, why don't we see if we could do a project? We're at Stanford. We know how to do projects. Let's put this project together and see how many different things we can do, how many performances. And that was it. We began to perform on campus for many different events. 
And then we begin to get called in the community. And I think you even went to Chicago, didn't you? Yeah, Join us did. in Chicago. Yeah, absolutely. We got invited to be in the first Viva Chicago Festival. And so I invited Tom yeah. to join us, and we had a great time, great party. So that's how it evolved. And at each of these concerts, and one of the ones I remember, um, have the most vivid memories of is in Richmond on Cinco de Mayo. Mm. And um, we're on a stage, on a really high stage. And, um, and the street is full of tens of thousands of people. And, uh, and then when, um, when you introduced the band, you basically gave each of our resumes. You said, he's got a bachelor's degree from the University of Massachusetts on keyboards. He's got a master's degree in modern thought and literature from Stanford University. We had... He's a PhD candidate for, and, and went through We had Beverly course. Allen on accordion. She was professor of literature and Italian studies at Stanford on accordion. Yeah. On trombone, Sidney Tigner had finished her BA at Yale, was doing her master's at Stanford on her way to a PhD in Chicago. Yeah. Smartest so, band ever put together. Oh, yeah, no. But it My was, guitar player and bass player were both human biology majors on their way to med school, so. But then the whole, uh, part, of the, part of the kind of thrilling thing about being in the band is that y you are kind of making a, a huge advertisement for education while you're entertaining thousands and thousands of people at the same time. It's funny because it wasn't meant to be that. It wasn't? No. Oh, I, mean, I don't respect you anymore then. <laughs> no, but at first, at first, at first, at first. No, at first. No, please don't listen. <laughs> what happened was one event that I was, we did was the, the 4th of July over here on the beach mm -hmm. uh, by the bridge. And I missed time my set. So I had five minutes left to the end of my set. And I had started, we usually finished with La Bamba, and that's when I introduced the band. So we started La Bamba, and I realized, oh, I have a lot of time. So I began to say, okay, Charlie Montoya, El Paso, Texas, human bio major at Stanford, he's on the way. And so I began to do that just <laughs> to use up my time. <laughs> when I got off the stage, people came up and said, this is wonderful. We love the way you promote education. I said, oh, yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> but what really was the consequence as I continued to do this, mm -hmm is that people begin to come up and go, you know, you really inspired us. I started community college. And I would have people come to me and say, remember I told you I was getting, I got my BA now and I'm gonna go now to get my masters. I've had folks over the years report on their educational progress and they'll come and now they bring children and grandchildren and talk to them about their education. And it's really funny because I thought, it's very interesting because all I did was introduce some musicians by their credentials, <laughs> yeah. but, yeah. It wasn't unique to my band, to our band. Many musicians are educated. They just generally don't talk about their background, their education, their resume. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it was important, the more I did it, I said, it's also important for people to know these musicians are not dropouts. They didn't just drop out of school and begin to play music. They have an education in addition to being committed to music and to doing this. So yeah. that, it all became part of that and it really has been part of what we do now and how we, we represent. So a year or so into this project, um, Jose is invited to spend another year, part, 
you know, partly because of this, but for the other stuff you were doing as well, to spend another year at the Chicano Research Center, and he asks San Diego State if he can take a second fellowship year, and they say no, so he quit his tenured position at, at uh, San Diego State. And that was the, the, the most important moment in my academic life. That was the moment where I said, I am never going to do something for my career. I'm going to do the stuff that's worth doing. And I thank you for that. Cool. Thank you so much. And, and what was the line that you said? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Will you play a little bit more for us? Sure. Yeah. And, and tell, us, tell us who's in the band now. Will do. Yeah. Boys. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jose Cuellar, Dr. Loco. Thank you, Lori Weiner. Thank you, Ha Jin. Thank you, Rabi Alamadine. Thank you, Jade Chang. Thank you all for coming to this. Thanks for becoming members of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Thanks to Stephanie Singer at the uh, center here. Thanks to Andrew Manikos, who made this all possible. It's been a real pleasure. He didn't ask me the same question that he ended everybody else with. Oh, Jose, why do you think the Los Angeles Review of Books is the most important publication in the world? Because the smartest man I know is the founding editor. <laughs> We will close out the show with this week's classic poetry drop. This week's poem is A Little Tooth by Thomas Lux. And I just want to say first that one day I asked a well-known novelist whose work I loved and respected to review a book for Los Angeles Review of Books. And I told him, of course, how much I loved his work. And he wrote back to say, thanks so much for getting in touch and then started to go on saying, I'm such a huge fan of your work. It's been such an inspiration to me. And in fact, I often have my, you know, I'm feeling like a million bucks, of course. I, and I often have my students read your work, especially, he said, sections of your book, Split Horizon. Now, I did not write a book called Split Horizon. Thomas Lux the poet wrote a book called Split Horizon. Up to that point, I was having such a great time. I was just feeling like uh, this guy whose work I respected loved my work. And of course, he thought I was Tom Slux. It's not the only time that I've been <laughs> mistaken. I wish I could make that Three Stooges <laughs> sound falling down, but I can't. Yeah. But besides being my doppelganger, Lux has been an important American poet since the 1970s when he published his first couple of books. They were surrealist, irreverent, ironic, very 1970s. But from the 1990s on, the poems have become more conversational, a bit more outward-looking, doing, as he calls it, quote, the real human business, unquote, of poetry. A Little Tooth is from the 1990 book, The Drowned River. A Little Tooth by Thomas Lux. Your baby grows a tooth, then two, and four and five. Then she wants some meat directly from the bone. It's all over. You know, she'll learn some words. She'll fall in love with cretins, dolts, a sweet talker on his way to jail. And you, your wife, get old, fly-blown, and rue nothing. You did. You loved. Your feet are sore. It's dusk. Your daughter's tall. That was A Little Tooth by Thomas Lux, L-U-X, 
read by Alan Campbell, known to Broadway audiences from the musical Sunset Boulevard. We have come to the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We would like to thank author Hajin and the inimitable Dr. Loco. And we'd also like to thank Andrew Monacos and Stephanie Singer. We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Orleano, Alan Minsky, our producer and questionable moral center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities. I'm Laurie Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening. 